On this episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we'll be discussing John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness from 1987. Joining us will be Troy Brownfield of the Saturday Evening Post and Eminent Press. Welcome to Cult Cinema Cavalcade, a movie podcast that features hosts Brandon and Cullen discussing a film considered but not limited to being a cult classic. The episode you are listening to will include plot spoilers and may contain harsh language. Follow CC Cavalcade on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to the show on cultcinemacavalcade.com, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are found. Suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct. Suppose there is a universe of mind controlling everything. What would you rather have? Aretha Garlic? Benediction? A crucifix? Faith is a hard thing to come by these days. This is Cult Cinema Cavalcade. This is episode 87. This is Brandon. And as always with me is your co-hoster, broadcasting from 1999. Colin, there's a very real possibility you guys are just going to explain to me what the hell I just watched. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are here to discuss the 1987 film Prince of Darkness. Colin, can you at least explain to us a little synopsis? A priest finds a mysterious cylinder in a deserted church for the passing of its previous keeper. He enlists a team of scientists to uncover its haunting secrets. If opened, it could mean the end of the world. Prince of Darkness is written and directed by John Carpenter and stars Donald Pleasance, Victor Wong, Lisa Blount, Jameson Parker, Dennis Dunn, Anne-Marie Howard, Peter Jason, and Alice Cooper. So thank you all for returning after we hacked the lantern and uh, you know had whatever whatever it was we went through last week. <laughs> As we uh, we stick on some satanic stuff, and oh boy, I said Satan, didn't I? That must mean we have with us from Imminent Press and Saturday Evening Post, Troy Brownfield. Hail Satan! <laughs> Welcome back, Troy. Troy, you could have came on last week. We were talking about cults and Satan worshiping, so you must have yeah, been well, itching. I, I hate to paint myself into one corner too much, but yeah... Um... Plus, the yeah. quality of the movie was so low, it could have been a television, uh, TV movie. <laughs> hey, we have we have graduated into full on feature films. Yeah, you jumped. <laughs> you jumped yeah. here. But I, you know, I love it. Every time we have you on, I feel like you're in this. Of all the guests we have, you have this story going on, and there's like a new chapter, and like all the movies <laughs> some seem to go together, building to the next thing. Sort of a theme with it, <laughs> but there's like a, a, the Troy Brownfield adventure through everything. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Well, to be fair, Aaron was on during hard rain and firestorm, so. <laughs> he put out the fire. That's right. So, oh, my God. So, welcome back. 
What's going on with you right now? You got some new excursions. Yeah, um, I started at the uh, Saturday Evening Post back in June. I'm a staff writer there. You know, I cover a lot of uh, history and pop culture stuff. The uh, Post has been around for, you know, literally a couple hundred years. You know, our beat is kind of sort of American history and current culture. And a lot of the stuff that um, I write for the web has to do with, you know, I do a lot of things that key into either trends or anniversaries. So uh, by the time that this runs, I'll have written a piece on the 50th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead and uh, a few other things that have to do with Halloween and, uh, you know, not just a horror film, but also just kind of the culture of how America celebrates Halloween, that kind of thing. I've got a piece that just ran on the website that's a little more political in nature, a little more... Um, you know, kind of where we are now about it's the 10th anniversary of the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy and how that affected the economy. And so I wrote a big piece that's going to run in the magazine in January um, all about the uh, economic collapse and stuff. So I'm doing a little bit of everything Gotcha. <laughs> with, mm. with will, that. And then oh, oh, go I, ahead. I was going to say, I will say the anniversaries and stuff you're picking out that you're writing about or if you're you're doing the, you know, because you have to the uh, 10 reasons why. You won't yeah. believe number three, but you're picking out stuff that I don't, I'm not seeing written everywhere, and they're interesting. They're, they're definitely interesting topics. Something I like I don't know about, but I go in and it's really interesting. But it's not like oh, everybody found this anniversary, so they're all writing the same thing. You've got something not only nobody else is writing about, but it's also very interesting, or I might not have heard of it or thought of it. Yeah, well, thanks. Thank, thanks on the interesting part for sure. But um, you know, that's one of the things that we do. I mean, we have you know not the you know, pull back the curtain. But I imagine a lot of kind of newsrooms work like this where we have the, you know, literally the weekly pitch meeting and we try to look at like kind of those round anniversaries and we, we dig pretty deep, you know. One I did last week that like nobody thought of, they all looked at me like I was nuts kind of, was when I mentioned that Will Smith was turning 50. I said, you know, for a certain segment of the audience, that's kind of a big deal that, you know, they will have a hard time grasping that the Fresh Prince is 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of puts in perspective, like what what is we're all dying. Yes, and so that, but that was kind of an interesting one. Yeah, it was kind of fun to do because, like, you know, when when that went up on uh, Facebook and stuff, a lot of people were messaging me, like, "Are you freaking kidding? He's fifty years old." Ain't nobody writing about Jaden when he turns fifty. I'll tell you that (laughs) if if he makes it. No, no, probably Uh, not happening. He doesn't drown his own arrogance. Damn, Cullen came prepared. Not a fan. Not <laughs> a fan. Cullen drank a bunch of green water just to get ready for this. And he's all... <laughs> Actually, I had a four loco today. That was green. Yes. That was more or less the color of our movie today. Cullen, Cullen uh, saw a trailer for After Earth and said, no thanks, I'll wait for After Jaden. <laughs> <laughs> so you got anything uh, new at Imminent Press coming along too? Yeah, uh, by the time that this airs, we'll be uh, neck deep in the uh, Kickstarter for uh, Terminal Pulp Anthology number three and number four, uh, which we are kickstarting together. And it's got a great crew of people on it. Just real quick, I'll give you the four writers of the four stories, like Justin Gray, Mm -hmm. who did, you know, Hawkman and Jonah Hex, um, Eric Palicki who has written Guardians of the Galaxy, and No Angel was a miniseries he did with his sister Adrian. Uh, Friday Night Lights and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
Vito Del Sante of The Stray, and Matt Brady, who used to run Newsarama and has the Science of website, did a science fiction story this time. For big writers with some really awesome art crews behind it, so you get two comics with uh, four feature-length stories and some really tremendous art, coloring, and lettering talent on that. And then you get some other stuff. If you uh, back three and four, if you happen to miss one and two, there's a reward level where you can get one, two, three, and four backing. And uh, you can also get uh, DRM-free digital copies of all four, too, depending. So it's a pretty cool package. So I'd say just go to imminent.press, and you can find that. That should be going on still by the time that you're listening to this. Uh, We bring you around here, and now we let you pick (laughs) this time. (laughs) Yeah. And you chose John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which, awesome. Yeah, I'll do John Carpenter any day. This is our first you know, admittedly directed by him film we done. We did Halloween 2 last year, which he did a lot of reshoot right. stuff and edit. He was very hands-on after the fact. I mean, he wrote the script, but after the fact with that movie. But this is actually directed by John Carpenter, our first one to pull on it. I, fit, I think it fits, you know, parameters of the show perfectly. Yeah, it's, man, it is an interesting piece. And, um, you know, there, there's literally tons of ways that you can talk about this. And I think one of the coolest things is, you know, right off the bat, he wrote it under an alias. Yeah. <laughs> which which being which the alias he wrote it under was Martin Quartermass, uh, from the Quartermass series, the British series of science fiction films, which all have to do basically with cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. Um to the point where was it Nigel Neal that wrote those original films? Um yeah, Neil gets name checked in here. There's a reference to somebody going to Neil University, mm-hmm. and um, Carpenter even worked with him later on stuff. But yeah, that that little written by Martin Quartermass gag in there right up front is kind of saying like, "This is a hint." Yes. <laughs> yeah. See, when yeah. I saw it, I thought of Alan Quartermain, and uh, <laughs> that I was less yeah. excited. Ah, uh, well, I I can understand. So why'd you pick it? I unabashedly love Prince of Darkness, and I I've, uh, have since it came out. Um, it's one of those movies that, honestly, I think that, you know, Carpenter has this really kind of interesting career arc after Halloween. This is something that uh, Brandon and I have talked about previously. But, you know, he constantly seemed for the longest time to be fighting to make up ground. <laughs> like mm-hmm. where he's, he's shifting and he. So he does he does the fog. And I don't remember like the reaction to the, the fog or escape from New York being particularly weird. They were just like but, solid hits and yeah. well liked. And and then Starman. Mm-hmm. But you're starting kind of like with Big Trouble in Little China. He tried something that was very different. You know, he he was deliberately he was he was familiar with Hong Kong sentiment. He was deliberately going in the Choi Hawk Shaw Brothers direction. He was leaning into it, trying to do something different. And everybody gave him a bunch of crap for doing something different. So he goes back to like a real hard horror turn with Prince of Darkness. And everybody gives him crap for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. so he does straight up satire with They Live. And then, you know, but it's like he had this kind of run of movies that, you know, it felt like the critics didn't get. And they really beat him up for. But the kind of the kind of the funny thing was there were lots of people who did get them. Mm-hmm. And those movies all found their audiences over time. And I mean, Big Trouble in Little China of the of the three is probably the most outright beloved 
They Live is one that gets referenced a lot in pop culture, even with the uh, Timmy and Jimmy fight in South Park. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but but Prince of Darkness is, is kind of like the, the, the least loved child in a way, and it might be why I love it more than the others. I mean, you've got a movie that's about like the quantum physics of evil. And I think that literally nobody else could have made this movie, mm-hmm. but John Carpenter and, and at the time. And it's, it's really interesting. And the more times you see it, the more you notice all of the little stuff kind of going on in it and in among it. And it's, you know, it's kind of an apt um, comparison when you think about music because Carpenter, you know, obviously being a composer and everything, it's when you, like when you listen to, albums or listen to things like you know maybe like a pink floyd record or beatles record or so forth or uh brian wilson you start to hear things upon further listens that you didn't hear previously mm-hmm. or you go and you read about something about it like you read about like how they recorded good vibrations and they talked about like how many times they had the cellos playing and you're like cellos what freaking cellos were in there and then you listen into it again and you can't not hear the cellos anymore they're they're always in the mix for you even though they might not have been previously and, and that's one of the things that I like about Prince of Darkness is that I'm continually noticing little things that nobody was going to get the first time they watched it. <laughs> right. You, know, you have to watch it kind of repeatedly to dig into a lot of the crazy stuff that's deep inside of it. Yeah. And like I said, I, we had a conversation earlier about this when you picked the movie and stuff. And when I, I watched it first time when I was uh, like a teenager in the 90s and I just kind of watched it and moved on. I wasn't that impressed by it or anything like that. And then uh, I didn't see it again till the Shout Factory Blu-ray for the film and I had to review it. And I watched it. I was like, what the hell was I thinking back then? This movie's fascinating as hell. Like, And I've continually gone back to it, oddly enough, after that because I feel like I, I missed something. Maybe I wasn't old enough. Maybe I just it, it took another time. But... I had totally whiffed on it back in the day and then found myself even more entranced with it now than ever. Maybe it aged well. I don't know. I think it does. I think it did age well. And it, it, there's a couple of really interesting things in there because it makes me want to think like everybody knows and references Schrodinger's cat, for example. Now, I would like to see how many times it was referenced before Prince of Darkness hmm. because it was not that big of a pop culture point. You know, Prince of Darkness precedes the Simpsons who have done Schrodinger's cat gags. And, you know, there's a lot of things. But I'm like, how how early on that train was Carpenter, for example? And some of the things he's talking about with quantum physics and quantum mechanics are, are certainly familiar parts of science fiction and pop culture in the time since. But, you know, this show, this, this movie precedes, you know, Quantum Leap. <laughs> yeah. It precedes yeah. a number of things that would play with some of the same ideas. You know, it's it's just a really curious piece. And it arrived in a really good horror year. Yeah. Um, I mean, 87's got, you know, Angel Heart, Nightmare 3, and, you know, and The Gate. And it goes back to our old friend, The Satanic Panic. You know, it's right in the middle of that. So right. there, <laughs> <laughs> there it know, is. There, there it well, is. it is. It is. It's right in the middle of it. You uh, know? Well, to be fair, this movie isn't pro-Satan. It's clear no. it isn't, so I don't <laughs> yeah. think the satanic panic people could freak about this. Well, you know, it's it, I do think that he probably got like a little jolt of glee at knowing all that stuff was going on. And it's like, well, Mr. Carpenter, what's your next movie called? It's called Prince of Darkness, and it's about the <laughs> anti-god. Oh, oh, OK. And it has <laughs> and Alice Cooper's doing a song. Woo! Yeah, yeah. 
Suck on that, Donnie. You. Uh, yeah. It's got an interesting connection. It always makes it probably more interesting for people to check out nowadays. I don't know if Carpenter was so open with it back then, but it's the thematic sequel to The Thing, a, a part of his Apocalypse trilogy mm-hmm. of yes. The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. And uh, they all three talk about different things, and they're all um, very Lovecraftian in nature. Yeah. And I think with this one, though, it's still the forgotten one because a lot of people spend their time talking about how In the Mouth of Madness is underappreciated in his last you know, great movie or good movie or yeah. whatever, hands down or something. This one gets overlooked because of, of that. Like I feel like, I don't know, this one is underseen in comparison to the other two for sure. Yeah. Um, Which is weird because it's yeah. Carpenter with Donald Pleasance. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. This movie really <laughs> watch like, this is just the John Carpenter players put on a production. Yeah. Yeah. Victor Wong, Dennis Dunn. Peter Jason. You know? Peter Jason, who's a John Carp, who's been in the most John Carpenter movies. I think this might've been their first, was this their first one? And then he was in everything from here on out. Yeah, that might be, you know, a couple of weird choices like uh, Tom Bray from Riptide. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Dirk Blocker, whose dad was Haas from Bonanza. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's some interesting people in the movie, apart well, from, like Colin said, the Carpenter players. Yeah, there's the you know, the guy from Simon and Simon. I saw yeah. him, I was like, is he in the right movie? It's like, the what else did Jameson Parker on. do? <laughs> yeah, it, well, the show was still going on, you know? So, and, and he wasn't the one on the show with the mustache either, which is odd. Yeah. Yeah, he... um. He looks weird with the mustache. I'm just gonna say that. When yeah. I when I get off the show, uh, McRaney, I get the mustache when I do other things. <laughs> That's he, right. He looks as he, odd he, with the mustache as Gerald McRaney does without one. You know, like yeah, yeah. He looks like a dollar store version of Chuck Norris. <laughs> no, he's he's Chuck, he's Chuck Norris without the gym. Like <laughs> oh. <laughs> less denim. Mm-hmm. Maybe he did it to look like Carpenter. Yeah, that, I kind of thought that. I kind of thought like he yeah. had to look like he was like you know how in like a Woody Allen movie that doesn't have Woody Allen. There's always someone who's kind of pseudo Woody Allen like, like John yeah. Cusack and Bullets Over Broadway and yeah, and, his mustache was definitely a little long on the ends like Carpenter. So I definitely and I was I thought the same thing when I was watching it too. I did have that thought too. So we we all three shared like they share a dream in the movie. We shared the thought of Jameson Parker being John Carpenter. Hmm. This is Jameson Parker. I wore the mustache <laughs> to look like Carpenter. Oh, very. Um, I'm sorry, I fell asleep. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I had the weirdest dream. Before before we get into this, uh, this movie's actually come up recently. Oddly enough, this happens with the show. We had this movie picked out before that happened, but uh, it's going to potentially be a TV series on Shudder um, exploring it. I don't know what they'll do with it, but I can see it as a miniseries. I don't know about an ongoing mm-hmm. series. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I hate to get into, like, you know, you discuss that too hard. You get into the whole fan fiction thing. Um, but, you know, I could see a lot of directions. I could see them starting earlier. Yeah. For one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then going to uh as cullen pointed out like the the one location or whatever over a a span of episodes but you know the movie definitely ends in a cliff hanging point so it would be interesting to see how they do it 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that you'd focus more on individual characterization, I think, with the, you know, if you kind of had the same kind of big cast or whatever. But right. well, this one, this movie, surprisingly, with how many characters there are, does a wonderful job of like characterization, like giving us uh-huh. good details that are even like small. We'll talk about them. Uh, but I mean, yeah. it's just surprised how much everybody, people get enough. Or people get a surprising. There's a there's a good balance here of, of yeah. the use of people with how many there are. But yeah, we'll get started here. So it begins with a full moon, and an old priest dies in bed, clutching to this little box. And we move to a campus the next morning, as Brian Marsh checks out. He's this is Jameson Parker's character. He checks out a girl named Catherine. His introduction is almost like an introduction of his mustache. The way like the camera is like shooting up at him. He's our main character and his mustache. Enjoy the rest of the film, folks. <laughs> uh, a nun finds the priest dead the next like day. Uh, later in the room, she's telling a priest played by Donald Pleasance, who is never given a name. Just he's a priest. She's telling him about it, and he wonders why that guy was there. And he glances to the box, and a bit later he's reading from a journal. And we then meet uh, Professor Howard Barak, who's uh, played by Wong. And he arrives at campus and is curious about this. The sky looks funky to everybody currently. The priest with the box, and uh, he's chatting with some cardinals outside in a courtyard, having a discussion. We can't hear it, but he opens and shows a key that was inside. And the Barak... Uh, teaches a class that has Brian and Catherine in it. It's about you know nature, quantum physics stuff, time, tangible things. But with the existence of ghosts and shadows, he says it would all collapse. Uh, the priest then arrives in an abandoned church, and he there's a there's a, a door that this key must go to when you see it, and he opens it. And then that night, Brian's leaving campus. He sees Catherine from afar again, and then she enters a building. And he stares at the full moon. She comes back out with some dude. Kind of just like he's like, I'm going to ask her out. But no, the priest is then typing a note to Professor Barak about a discovery he made. Next day in class, Professor Barak is talking about the universe. A nun arrives a class and Brian and a classmate named Walter, who is played by Dennis Dunn. Yay. The, they spot her. Uh, the priest and the professor meet on the church campus and the priest shares a diary with the professor and pleads with him to help him. It's a lot going on. It sounds really cruising on paper, but it actually kind of works here because of the way the, the opening credits happen. It's able to cut between these things and spread the time and different segments. Cause the opening See, credits of this movie is 10 minutes. Yeah. See, when I watched it, like the, the credits would pop up, and I would think, oh, oh, my God, we're still in the credits part of the movie? Like, Jesus, let's, come <laughs> on, let's go, guys. That's part of the fun. Carpenter wanted to have fun like that with the movie. Well, I'm, I'm glad he had fun during this period of time. <laughs> I, I think it's pretty fun. It's unique. It's different, and it's able to separate these segments without— like, I understand he's like, like trying to set like an atmosphere of mystery and all that, but, man, whoo, this— it, 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 this movie didn't feel like it needed to be as long as it was because of this opening sequence. I know it's. I think it sets up a lot. I, I'm I'm pro this opening sequence. It's it's scattered. Yeah. It's because of the scattered nature of all the things we're setting up 
that I think the opening credits helps it. If it wasn't there, it'd feel kind of rushed and sloppy, but because you're taking a break between things, it feels like time's going. Well, I think, Brandon, I'll tell you this. It certainly didn't feel rushed. Well, I think one of the things that helps it hang together is is the score. Um, I think this is one of Carpenter's just cooler and more unique scores, but he's the one thing tying all of the interstitial scenes together is he, he's building an undercurrent of unease with the music mm-hmm. and, and small images like people looking at the sky and like, you know, that they know something's wrong <laughs> Yeah. with, yeah. And, and, and it's kind of like, it, it, it's unease. Plus the fact that, you know, by this point, you know, John Carpenter's a brand name, you know, you've, you've sat down for a John Carpenter movie. So at some point the shit's going to get, <laughs> yeah, you know, uncomfortable. And I think that you know this is kind of yeah, yeah. I I can see where Colin's talking about, but you know, I do feel like he's deliber- It's deliberately paced in order to bring in those elements. I think. I mm-hmm. think that that's probably inaccurate. And the thing I like about the score, and I think it because of the credits makes it more pronounced because the score hits whenever the credits come back. Yeah, the it feels like the score come it, it enters and then never goes away. It does a lot of different things, yeah. but it feels like it's constantly looming there. And I kind of like that aspect of it when you're watching. Yep. But yeah, no, when you first see it, it's like, whoa, the credits are still going. Whoa, the credits are still going. Whoa, the credits. <laughs> I, I, I understand that because I remember seeing the movie the first time myself. But after I, I sort of, you know, that, you know, upon multiple watchings, I, I see like a, a kind of brilliance in the way he's doing that. But the first time, yeah, I could see it being taken away. Being like, whoa, still credits? But there's a maximum. Yeah. Every time he does it, there's a maximum. There's no more than like three separate credit screens during that point. Those those things. I was counting them this time. I was like, how many hmm. go between these? But there'd be like one or two or th- or three quick ones. Yeah. And it, and it kind of gets like in the final one, it gets like the uh, written by Martin, Martin Quartermass credit, the executive producer credit, and then directed by Carpenter, I think, are like the three final ones. So it's yeah. kind of like your, your button on that right i will say mm-hmm. it's funny um there's a, a show a little program called horrors hollow grounds which has sean clark who runs horror hound which we had the conventions which we had audrey lane on from last week but he does a show where he goes back to the filming the shooting locations for horror movies where they're done what they look like today and gives you know historic stuff about the land and all that and he did prince of darkness and these are only like 10 to 15 minute uh episodes but his episode parodied the credits of this movie, and <laughs> and and his credits when he got finished finally ended. So like it went through the whole time, and then his, like the final credit came when he you know finished showing. So it was pretty funny. Excellent. That's fantastic. Brian is hanging out in his home and watching a TV special on supernovas. And we then notice a bug infestation on the back of his TV. Well, maybe he shouldn't eat pizza over his <laughs> TV like an idiot. It, here, I want to jump in on the supernova thing. I don't think that was a mistake. Um, you think it was a sent to him? Well, I, or... I think that it was. I think it was there um, because when they're talking about, you know, this star exploded and it takes seven million years for the light to reach Earth and et cetera. And then later on, when they talk about the carbon dating, the material on the cylinder, it was 7 million years old. Hmm. And I think that it's, you know, the light getting to earth. I think all these things are kind of happening at the same time 
for, you know, the reasons that we get into, but it's, it, it strikes me watching it now that literally anything could have been on that television. And I think that that was purposeful to Probably. have that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Uh, limo pulls up to that abandoned church and the priest and professor Barack get out and he tells Barack that the priest <laughs> that, that died was the watcher of that building and every day opened the locked door or the enter it, which takes him to a cellar built in the 1500s. And it was kept a secret from the Vatican from one priest guardian to another who passed it on after death. And they enter a room heavily populated by candles with a cylinder with this green matter inside spinning around. And there's a book written uh, next to it in many languages that has been distorted, distorted, erased, rewritten many times. And the priest mentions a change that started about a month ago, noting the sky. But they're always noticing it today, apparently. It's becoming more apparent. Well, yeah, but, that's what I'm saying, that yeah. it was so subtle it took that long for them to even notice what was going on. Yeah. They, they still don't know what the hell's going on. They just know something's wrong. Walter and Catherine walk talking class stuff, and when they get to uh, um, class, Brian and two others are there, and it's been canceled with a note for them to go see the professor, and they're noted that they'll be part of a research project for the weekend. Three of them leave, and Catherine and Brian introduce themselves to one another, and they stroll on campus talking quantum physics, getting all hot there, right, with the quantum physics talk. <laughs> Things get awkward when Brian compliments her looks. Some things aren't changed by quantum physics, though. Such as? Well, for instance, every theoretical physicist I know wonders why it is that no one who looks like you ever seems to settle down in our end of the building. That's not true, and that's an extremely sexist thing to say. Confirmed sexist. I'm proud of it. Hey. I was just joking. What happened? You talk numbers, you get romantic, you talk people, you clam up. Just a little miscue, that's all. It's not your fault. I'm sorry. I'll see you later. Wait. This conversation isn't what I had in mind. Can we start over? Okay. I was hoping that you would need some help with your theory and that maybe we could discuss it over for dinner or something? Well, I suppose something could be arranged. There are other things that I need help with over dinner. Uh, the class then meets with the professor who lightly tells them about the project but says in time he'll tell them what they're actually doing. I'm going to confess my ignorance here. Uh, when they're talking about like quantum physics and stuff like that, my eyes just glazed over. I was like, I just said, <laughs> like, I know this is going to come up later in the movie. I understand it's like how they're building the relationship. But like as far as what the facts were, I knew none of the facts mattered in the rest of the movie. So I was like, okay, they're building a relationship. Okay, I guess I'm in. But that stash. <laughs> yeah, if they were talking about the physics of that stash, like, well, okay, this is this is clearly an important thread through the movie. I do like how they treat her like she almost is like treated like she would be in a movie today which is kind of ahead of its time when they have the scene where he's like hitting on her with stuff and he's like okay that wasn't right mm -hmm. I'm sorry. you know like it's real it feels yeah. like a scene that would be written today and it's all the way back in 87 you know carpenter does not get the credit because 
you know, where Halloween falls in the continuum of what, you know, Ebert called dead teenager movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ebert was always complimentary of Halloween. Yeah, he championed Halloween. Uh, it, it, Carpenter's always treated women pretty well. Mm-hmm. He's always had, you know, intelligent, you know, at the very least tough, forthright female protagonists in Halloween and The Fog and, you know, Adrian Barbeau again in Escape from New York. I mean, this is a thing for him. Yeah, and Laura, going Ghost, back to Ghost Assault. of Mars, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that works. <laughs> yeah. She's a, she's, a strong, she's a strong woman in that movie, but everyone's an idiot in that film. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the best idiot, though. Um, yeah, no, she is. She's yeah. the most confident moron in that film. Um, yes. But, I mean, even going back to Lori Zimmer in Assault on Precinct 13, like, she's a pretty... Yeah. They're rock solid characters. I mean, he gave the he you know created the final girl, and as much as you know they like to give the slasher movies shit, they produced a lot of strong like you know tough female characters that were able to outsmart you know athletically overpower you know all sorts of things that rather than just be a helpless victim, and he helped yeah. to pioneer that. But yeah, all his characters you know through movies are pretty good, and even um, Meg Foster, they live. They I mean there's yeah. He's never had an issue. Like, maybe that's why he's, his movies, I mean, they age pretty well. Yeah. And, you know, and it's kind of funny because, um, well, well, we'll get to it in a minute. Or, you know, when we talk about the, the team going to the church, remind me to comment on the computers and everything because I have a couple of observations about that. that mm, okay. <laughs> Barack arrives at the church and notices a homeless woman, like, bowing to the sky, and there's bugs crawling on her face. The priest and Barack discuss, quote unquote, him. And the priest urges Barack he needs to he needs to have this proved scientifically so as to explain and warn the people. And I, I I like this aspect of the priest. He's like I just you know asking you know like we need to have proof, which is not a religious thing, you know like yeah he's it's, like yeah yeah and he feels the church has betrayed him like his own thing has betrayed him by people keeping a secret and all this stuff. But he wants you know he. Also believes science is a you know he can prove it like you know this is this is here but we need to explain the people in a believable way rather than just oh no it's the devil yeah what what I like about Pleasance in the movie is that it, it, okay he he's kind of falls on the continuum if you go back to the Amityville horror you know and Rod Steiger plays the priest that mm-hmm. the priest that's the skeptic yeah. you know the priest that finally discovers the devil you know even if the Amityville story is a bunch of crap on a certain level. <laughs> <laughs> but but Pleasance is kind of like his faith is shaken by discovering the truth about his faith. Yeah. And it's really kind of interesting because it's like, you know, they lied to us. Not that, you know, they didn't lie to us about Jesus being real. Jesus being real. They lied to us about how bad the rest of it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No. He's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That, and it, it's a really interesting way to go and, and Pleasance I think plays it really nicely because he's shaken I mean he's a shaken character for, for most of the film and well it's also nice that he's a shaken character but he's not a shaken character that doesn't contribute anything that's right. good that he actually is a, a active member of what is going on and figuring out what's what's happening and what uh, what is going to happen yeah, yeah. And, and he also provides everyone with uh, information as well so he's he's all kinds of great 
Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's 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 opposite of what uh, the people before him, the guardians before him, were. He's like, no, 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 we we are not keeping, <laughs> yeah. we are not keeping things from each other here. Um, this is some bullshit. We're getting the scientists in here. Yeah. He, he, Donald Pleasance is a firm believer of secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets uh, hurt someone. <laughs> I mean, seriously, he, he's got this big thing and he invites zero people from the church to it. It's all. Well, yeah, they're the ones that have been hiding this the whole time yeah. instead of doing something about it. Brian and Catherine meet up further date and we quickly cut to them in bed in the morning it's it's do you want to get some coffee cut to they're in bed so this is what john carpenter apparently does so tom atkins normally you know him with the mustache in the fog picks up jamie lee curtis uh, you know hitchhiking next scene in bed together jameson parker not known for the mustache goes to coffee with the girl next scene in bed with each other that had to have been a tremendous card trick one of two things is happening here either john carpenter is trying to convince people that mustaches are sexy by showing that they get laid or that was one hell of a cup of coffee yes (laughs) well Well, well, colin you didn't want to hear any more quantum physics discussions so he got right to it enough talk it's getting a sack this just occurred to me correct me if i'm wrong they tease Jameson Parker doing the card trick a couple of times, but he never actually does it, does he? No. No, at one point, like, the card disappears from his hand, but it's probably not of his doing. But, yeah, it's like, I see that. Like, what were you trying to do? What What is this? Why do I care? Maybe it's misdirection. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, he uses quantum physics and card tricks. Maybe. Brian goes out and takes a look in the weird at the weird sky and then brings a drink to Catherine. They talk about not jumping to conclusions about things with their relationship or whatever. And we then see a homeless man in the alley played by Alice Cooper. Uh, he's taken by the sky. Then uh, looking, he looks toward the abandoned church. And Alice Cooper just came to visit the set of this movie and wound up being an important part of it. I can tell you why, um, if you don't know. Shep Gordon, executive producer, was also Alice's manager. And um, Shep Gordon, if you go look up Shep Gordon, because, I mean, if you don't know, if you know music and everything, you probably realize he managed Blondie and a whole ton of important New York artists and important artists in punk and metal. And he was Alice's, he was manager of the Alice Cooper band. Okay. Like on up through Alice, you know, going solo and everything. And so that, the discussion apparently of why Alice was there in the first place was because he was talking to um, Carpenter about maybe using one of Alice's songs. And in the scene in the alley, when, when they kill, you know, Tom Bray's character, you can hear in the distance, like it's playing from another building or something, the song that Alice It's on his headphone. It's his headphones. He's, yeah, 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 he's got right. headphones on. Yeah, but he's, I think Alice Cooper's pretty good here. Yeah, he's menacing. Yeah. That's all he needs to do is be menacing. They. <laughs> They made Alice Cooper even more pale, somehow. Yeah, yes, they did. That's right. The class arrives and uh, looks across the street, and the man, the, Al- the Alice Cooper guy, has a crowd of homeless people behind him, all staring blankly at the sun. And then we see a crew beginning to set up equipment, 
as the class unpacks because it's not just uh, Professor Barack and the students take a weekend at the haunted house. They actually bring in experts and professionals as part of the research. So there's more, there's tech people, there's experts. Uh, Dr. Paul Leahy, played by Peter Jason, arrives to see Barack. Yeah. Professor Barack. Yes. Hi, I'm Paul Leahy. Oh, Dr. Leahy. I'm glad you could come, yes. Well, now, all I really know about what's going on here is what one of your students told oh, yes. me on the telephone. We're just getting organized. Ah. We have some equipment. Find the spot over there. Right. So we're making this to Central Lab. Oh, sure. Well, what are we uh, actually doing here? Uh, the homeless people have moved a little closer and just stare at the church from the sidewalk. Yeah, now, I really think that the... Uh, the setting up of equipment and everything is interesting because it gives you this view of, you know, Barack says it to them before they leave. It's like, you're not, it's like you're, you're students. You don't have your PhDs yet, but you're all competent physicists. And, and that would be the same for any of the people in the field. And they identify some different fields like biochemistry and linguistics and so forth that these people are, yeah. are all well, heavy think, duty. in. I think the real reason they're there is because it was a last minute thing and he wouldn't tell anyone why they were there and i have to believe that someone that uh, with advanced degrees and stuff like that would say no i'm not doing this <laughs> get the hell out of here it's my weekend this can yeah. wait well that's what dennis dunn's character is like but he's still there <laughs> yeah yeah walter well on a hot date. and i think it's kind of cool because the stuff that they're setting up would have been extremely current stuff for 1987 mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. this is another note about like competent Catherine right she's setting up the computers in a room the stuff that she's going to use for translating because you know when they're translating the numbers out of the book and it's Catherine's job to enter the the numbers to follow the math mm -hmm. she's in there assembling the computer by herself which at that time and a lot of other shows like you know either films or tv shows you'd have had the whole I don't understand computers thing going on which mm -hmm. a lot of sitcoms and shows leaned into this movie does the exact opposite all of the women are by demonstrative uses of their abilities very good at what they're doing <laughs> yeah 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 because yeah, she's yeah. in the same room with lisa who also sets up her own computer yeah which i i, I want to just put a fine point at no point are we saying we're surprised a woman setting up her own computer we're saying in 1987 right. in a movie that's not something you would see yeah. And there's no shit like a man's better at this than a woman is, or a woman's better than this than a man is. It's just everyone's good at what they do. And that's it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They're competent people. I mean, they're they're experts for a reason. I mean, you don't have a scene where you know they set her down at the computer and go, "Okay, you do this, and then this, and then this." She just does it because you know she's a college student and she's a in quantum physics so yeah. yeah she knows how to do that and then like lisa she translates the book and she does the numbers and they're like in charge of the, there's no one else in the room monitoring they're doing their own stuff like it's great and and lisa even leads meetings mm -hmm. yeah but, uh, apparently from what we learned earlier in this movie if uh if the coffee comes out watch out someone getting sexed <laughs> <laughs> so uh consensually <laughs> Here comes the coffee. They're all setting up. The priest uh, arrives at the church, and the homeless woman, sounding possessed, stops him. It's so wonderful what you're doing, Father. Opening the church again. And he notices she has a cup full of maggots. And uh, when he gets inside, he takes the group of students and Barack down to the basement to see the cylinder, which now has some 
set lights around it. And uh, Priest uh, says it's gaining strength and he can feel it all around them. Catherine's working out equations on her computer and notices the window is now covered in worms. And some of the tech guys are talking. And one is spooked by what he saw downstairs. It's Calder. And the other, Frank, thinks it's all bullshit. Yeah, uh, well, by the way, uh, Frankie, doesn't Frankie look like every special effects guy ever? Because he is a real special got, effects guy. <laughs> I'm not so, I, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. He is, yeah. Because he was a... He, he was stiff. He's a very stiff actor. He had that facial hair, and he had his hair that's kind of a mullet, but not quite a mullet. Yeah, and a beard. That 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 beard. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, he's the, a real same consistency. Guy. Yeah. yeah. And, oh, and oh my has, god. Frank <laughs> is also a Frank. Frank's also an ongoing John Carpenter reference because his last name is Wyndham, and John Wyndham, the British horror writer is a favorite reference of Carpenter. There are frequently characters named Wyndham in his movies. And so Frank Wyndham is this installment's yeah. <laughs> reference. Day of the Triffids and uh, oh. other uh, Stepford Cuckoo's uh, um, Village of the Damned. Uh, Wyndham wrote that, which, of course, Carpenter does his own version of later. Yeah, so the, yeah, there's a third guy with headphones. I can't remember his name, but he uh, that's, he's part of that's it. That's Bray. He's yeah. in that scene. Etchison. Yeah. Okay. Etchison. Yeah. Um, Which also. Yeah. He's just kind of. He's just kind of in the middle. He's there for his job. He's not really involved. He doesn't think it's bullshit, but he's not spooked too much by anything. And then Catherine, she finds some readouts that the cylinder can only be opened from the inside. And the homeless people continue to patrol outside as it becomes night. A woman named Kelly, who's a part of this, tells Walter about the homeless people possibly being chronic schizophrenics, and she reveals. Then that she has a bruise on her arm, and uh, then one of the readout guys tells Dr. Leahy he's taking off for the night. It's Atchison. Outside the bottom of the stairs on the side of the building, he sees a wooden cross with a pigeon nailed to it. And then Alice Cooper's homeless guy stumbles toward him and picks up like a, a half bicycle. It's got like the yeah. middle, the rod in the middle sticking out, and then he comes at him, but he turns to go back up the stairs, and it's blocked by the rest of the homeless people, and he turns around, and he gets stabbed with the bike. The which bike, is- which was a prop from Alice's stage show at the time. Uh, <laughs> so not only did he just show up and get a job, he brought his own equipment, too. <laughs> I could kill him with the bike. Great. I'll go get it. It's in my truck. <laughs> I mean, it's in my truck. Is there supposed to be any, like, symbolism with the way he is after he kills him? Like, because he's kind of standing up on the on the rod, but maybe it's just for cool effect. Uh-huh. I didn't know if there was any kind of symbolism with how he looked. Because, I mean, we uh-huh. just saw a pigeon nailed to a cross. Yeah, uh, maybe he's, I don't know, first sacrifice? I don't know. He's the first uh-huh. one that, they, they don't really get into it, but, I mean, he's first blood, really. I guess when he got stabbed, I said, Jesus Christ! But there you, you, know, go. you never know. <laughs> I know I would if I, if I was impaled with a bike. <laughs> Brian stops Barack and wanting to know, you know, what the su- that substance is, what the substance is becoming, and he hands him a paper with a biblical passage, which Brian is shocked and tells him this is crazy. Susan then arrives at the green substance. She's the radiologist. With just, glasses. With glasses. And she just sits alone, staring at it. And we see a dripping upwards of the ceiling of green stuff. Uh, Lisa, we then cut to Lisa leading a discussion of what uh, she's translated from the passages, saying that this is, this is of uh, extraterrestrial ancestry, but a human-like race. 
we go back to Susan. She gets sprayed in the mouth by the substance, the green stuff, and uh, come back to Lisa, who says Christ was um, knew of this stuff, and he was trying to give warning, but was deemed crazy uh, by the government's stuff and was killed. Um, but his disciples kept this secret alive and wanted to wait until man could scientifically prove it. So I guess the uh, disciples wanted science as well but that's like the the secret of christ was like he knew this was trying to warn people and that's why he was killed that was well they said he was also an alien that he was literally a a member of that race himself they said christ was an extraterrestrial and which was an interesting bit but also this this goes to the thing we were talking about with calder his characterization like when they first start talking about it and he comes in the room with wyndham and etchison and he sits down and he looks shaken and you see him in the background when Lisa's talking and he crosses himself Mm-hmm. So you see that like Calder is going through his own thing and it's not super obvious, but if you look at him in the background of scenes, his reaction is pretty consistent. He is a guy that among these scientists, he is also a person of faith and it's really shaken him that all of this stuff is happening. He believes he's not questioning it at all. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the thing is that, you know, according to this movie, Jesus is still a savior. He's just not like, dying for, you know, people sins he's trying to save you know the world yeah. from this this anti-god that we, we find out later in the movie the priest then starts feeling like uh his calling was only selling a product of sorts susan sits in the basement struggling to breathe brian then shows a readout to Barack that the cylinder produced some powerful energy in a short burst recently. Susan then rises, and her appearance is uh, reminiscent of the homeless people outside. Uh, Brian and Barack deduce that the cylinder can produce psychokinesis, but Barack says not to tell the others just yet. It may help them to, quote-unquote, trap the bear. Walter then wanders the halls and runs into Susan. He talks to her, but she stands at a distance, motionless. And he goes into a room and grabs, I think he grabs a beer, right? Like, is that a, Yeah, okay, the I'm cooler. Like, That's an odd thing to bring on the research thing. Of, <laughs> I wouldn't hey, think so. I think he that had that... a date, and if he can't have a hot date, he's going to have beer. There you go. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, he you get a bunch of uh, grad students and whatnot together right. to uh, do t- research on the weekend. Somebody's bringing something to drink. I told you, once that coffee comes out, Man, oh man, oh better <laughs> off. He annoys Lisa and, and then leaves the room. Uh, his classmate uh, comes in looking for Susan, but she apparently isn't down the hall anymore. Uh, Walter seems upset and annoyed by this whole operation because he had a hot day, doesn't want to be there. And then Mullins, who he was looking for, returns to the basement to find Susan. Brian privately tells Catherine about the power reaching out to them influencing and changing things by thought uh we go back to mullins who finds some some readout and susan appears behind him and snaps his neck barack tells the priest about every particle has an anti-particle of like a mirror image every particle has an anti-particle its mirror image is negative side maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-God, bringing darkness instead of light. Why weren't we told the truth? (laughs) Without the technology to confirm, 
It would have been another legend. But he was our prisoner, not yours. We had a responsibility to warn the rest of the world. Only the corrupt are listened to now. They tell us what we want to hear. We believe it to be divine light. And he feels as if something moved through the room. Mm-hmm. You know, as I think about this, not only is it like an anti-god, to, uh, to me it feels like a like bizarro god. Yeah. Because, you know, god brings life, and uh, this anti-god brings death. Um, yeah, it just seems like like the it has the opposite powers of God, like Bizarro would. <laughs> You're right. That's have you ever seen the uh, Pat Oswald routine about all the different abilities of Jesus? I think. Oh, yeah. Probably, oh, yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> picking up powers. Yeah, <laughs> we need to write out Sandwich Joe. Let's. Get... <laughs> <laughs> now it's it's interesting because every every discussion between. Well, Colin, you already commented on, you know, Pleasance gives information like all the time and and, Mm. um, really kind of advances the story with that. But I I think every conversation between uh, uh, Pleasance and Wong is interesting. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. Because they they play the counterpoints to each other really well. Um, And Pleasance, you know, man of faith, realizing his faith's betrayed him and he's got to put his trust in science to do the right thing. Wong, man of science, who's realizing that, oh, all this crazy shit's real. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. They yeah, both it's, start buying, slowly buying into, crossing over into the other's territory to where if you felt like this kept going on, they'd be on polar opposite sides by the end of it. That was, you know, they slowly seep into yeah. another's thing. Outside, one of the tech guy, uh, the tech uh, tech guys, Frank, he's uh, bitching about this whole thing, calling it Looney Tunes and Kaka, and his colleagues are excited about possibly being on the verge of truth, and they go back inside uh, the church, but he refuses to. Uh, the homeless then surround him, and Susan comes out uh, from the fire escape, and she's covered a bit in bugs and stares him down. He then looks down and is covered in them himself. And the homeless woman that you know we've had a focus on comes, then runs out and stabs the shit out of him with scissors. And it's a long run. She's fast as hell, but it's also really long. Yeah, yeah. And it makes it even brutal. that makes it even creepier to, yeah. to me, man. Like it's just her, yeah. and then just like this eerie. Yeah, it's weird. And then you just hear that the footsteps just and then stabs. Stab, 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 stab. <laughs> Inside, the guys tell Leahy and, and Brian that Frank left. He then asks about Susan, who nobody has seen. And outside, the homeless woman looks upon Frank's dead body. Walter has a dream about a broadcast that tells him it is not a dream. And it, it looks like, you know, a video um, rather than a dream, but it's a transmission being sent via a dream and from the it's of the church yeah. and a dark figure begins to come out and says, we are broadcasting from the year 1990. And, he, and he's woken up by Brian. But this has been the one eff- effective thing all throughout this movie through watching it is this video just creeps me the fuck out. Just the way it is. Yeah, it is. yeah like, like tremendous. Say whatever you want about the rest of the movie. This is unarguably the thing that works 
the best in the movie, just how unsettling it is. Yeah, I, I'm 36 years old. This will still give me nightmares. <laughs> like, it just, it's so crazy. It, yeah. It's, it's so well done. The recurrent use of it gives you a little bit more each time. Just you, you see a little bit more of it as it goes forward. I think one of the reasons that it is so effective, it's just so jarring because we're watching film and then cut to this crappy, you know, VHS tape that was filmed off of a TV screen, you know, you with an actual film camera. So it's another layer of unnaturalness that's yeah. just smacked in the middle of your movie. And then you get snapped right back into the movie. Like once that mission is over. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'll tell you something like John Carpenter to me, he's always been like the master of like simplicity. Like he's always really effective with simple things. And in his most complex, one of his more complex movies, it's this simple thing here that's scaring the hell out of me, you know? Yeah. Up to this point in the movie, I'm kind of like, I don't know, whatever. And then like when I see this, like it like immediately snapped up, like what the hell is happening? This is freaking weird, man. It's creeping me out and the figure it's just like it's just slightly it's just in the dark but it's like slightly tall i'm sure it's human and it maybe has a cape and it's yeah. like not yeah. much and it's just like oh it's unsettling it's like you don't want him you want him to come out of there and show us who it is but you don't you want him to stay back there because you might be too scared of what comes out you know it's to me it looks like like a horror host but that's actually like scary you know what I mean? Like they're not like goofy and campy. It's like it kind of has like that outline, but it looks like genuinely unsettling to me. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what it, it is, but it's one of the scariest things Carpenter's ever done in any movie. It's just oh yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting how it shifts the, you know, it's still a horror movie. It's still supernatural, but it kind of shifts and adds this little extra science fiction element to it. That and, and it, it's also God. This is just going to sound so weird. Uh, upon retrospect, after you see it a bunch of times, it's almost like there's an element of hope that that's going on because somebody is still fighting yeah, yeah. in the future to try to send it back. So you're in the territory of like Terminator and Days of Future Past, the, the comic story, the good one, where uh, you're getting the, re the warnings from the future trying to stop the thing before it happens, which is interesting territory to go into with um, that. You know, you have the idea of like the, the Jesus story is one bookend. I'm trying to warn you from the past all the way into the future. But then the future is trying to also warn you <laughs> from a lot of stuff going on. There's just a lot of stuff going on in the movie. After Walter wakes up from the dream that Brian, Brian wakes him up, we're like, damn it, Brian. Uh, Lisa takes a break to go nap on a cot. Which is kind of like this realistic scenario they got. They're kind of like, you know, like working at a hospital, but they, you know, they're going to be there 72 hours and yeah, they need yeah. to take little shifts and naps, which I kind of like that setup. Takes a break. Susan is hiding in the darkness in the room. And uh, Barack then has the same dream as Walter with a little more to it. And it says, uh, and you can pick up them saying it says their technology has not advanced or something like that. And that's the reason. Their technology hasn't advanced, but they can send you messages through dreams. It's, like, really uh, interesting. Priest tells Barack of the Brotherhood of Sleep that anyone in close proximity will have the same dream he just had. And then uh, we cut to Susan climbing atop Lisa and sprays her with the substance from her mouth. The priest tells Barack, the guardian priest, 
had that dream for years, and it's a premonition and will continue to unfold as they sleep, and it pushes everything out to make room for itself. So you have to have, like, a clear mind when you sleep to get the full thing. I don't know. Maybe just um, destroy the church. Maybe they just should have done that. <laughs> I don't know. Who? Bury this thing. I don't know. How could Again, you sit having that dream forever? This. How could you just sit there oh, yeah. and having this dream? Because apparently the Guardian has been just having this dream and having this dream and having this dream. Uh, yeah, I get to have a disturbing nightmare every night. You yeah. know what? I think I'm just going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit this job. I'm going <laughs> to... Just, I don't know, working a fast food place. Anything is better than this career. Hey, other priest, well, you want to know a cool religious secret? What? Here, take this key. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> so long, well, going, back to what, going back to what Colin said a minute, um, I think it's Leahy that does make the suggestion. Why don't we fill the whole thing in with concrete? Yeah. Yeah. Someone yeah. does say that. Like, it's literally in the dialogue. I think it's, it, it could be Brian, but I think it's Leahy that says it. You know, you can just fill the whole thing in with concrete. Leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah. this church was abandoned in the 50s, but they decided, well, someone should still take care of it. Like, no, no one should take care of it. Just get rid of it. Yeah, oh, that's it's Walter that counters, let's shoot it into orbit. <laughs> right, yeah. Yes, perfect. Shoot it into the sun. Get rid of it. So Brian and Walter look for Mullins in the basement. Walter's just not playing along with all this still. And after they leave, uh, we see Mullins' body. And the substance drips into his mouth. Uh, Kelly is tired. The girl with the bruise on her arm. Uh, she plays a big role later, but isn't much early on. She's tired and wants to sleep, but Catherine is fascinated by the equation she's getting. She tells Kelly to go to sleep, and she'll wake her in a half hour. Catherine then notices the bruise, which now has the like a symbol shape on her in it. And Kelly says it doesn't hurt anymore and leaves to go sleep. Calder does some rounds to tell everyone that they're going to have a meeting. He enters Lisa's room where she is furiously typing while blankly staring not at the screen. And it says, I live over and over and over. And then it stops and changes the screen to, you will not be saved by the 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 Holy Ghost. Ghost. You will not be saved by the God Plutonium. In fact, you will not be saved. And then Susan appears behind Calder and closing him in the room. And when he turns, Lisa jumps him. Pinned to the floor, Susan kisses him, transferring something mouth to mouth. But that, yeah, that scene's just creepy with the typing. Yeah, that that typing is like just saying like you will not be saved. I mean, that's kind of creepy. But like you said, combined with that, that typing, that super unnatural typing. Well, I love just. Yeah, I love how it's like religion's not gonna save you. Science ain't gonna fucking save you. Nobody's gonna save you. Like that's. This scene uh, uh, reminded me of, like a Japanese horror movie. Honestly, yeah, just that that, yeah. that sense of unease and unnaturalness. That it, it, it's a familiar setting, just in a very unnatural way. Yeah, there there is a real body horror aspect working its way through the movie, which you get more with Kelly later. But when the first time that Kelly's in the basement and bangs her arm on the equipment and then the bruise develops and then you see that the symbol is the same symbol that was in the book that Lisa was translating and you know but then you start to see like the changes that are happening to her and other people and it it's it there's just a lot of unsettling to go around <laughs> it's a it's a really yeah. spooky movie i mean not i mean the settings yeah. there but the the way he lights it and i don't think this isn't one shot by Dean Cundy either this is his other cinematographer that he he uses he frequented it's got it going on in that aspect yes so this meeting happens and barack begs everyone to stay as the next 48 hours is critical the priest wants to know 
of their dream. He descri- he describes it, and Brian suggests uh, tachyons, and they ponder the dream slash shared vision. The priest suggests it's a message. Uh, Barack suggests that they are messages from the future, and then Brian wonders if it's a warning, if anything. And then Susan and Lisa begin moving the cylinder from the basement. Catherine sees Frank outside trying to communicate and calls everyone over to the window, and he says he has a message for them. I've got a message for you, and you're not going to like it. Look at his chest. And we see he is fully consumed by the bugs before just completely dissolving into insects, basically. Yeah, not not just dissolving, but like his head flops, just falls off, his arm falls off. So it's not just, uh, it's a slow collapse of himself into the bugs. Yeah. And his face yeah. when he says that line is just like, ooh, it's creepier than any of the homeless people or anything. It's just like, wow. Uh, it's it's really good stuff. It's really well yeah. executed. Yeah, it, it's creepy enough that he's, you know, he was he was dead and now he's standing up and it just gets worse. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Calder wanders the halls with a chair dragging behind him singing Amazing Grace. group runs into him he rips a part of the chair off and then slits his own throat with it uh, yeah yeah this, this is this is brilliant this is what i talk about like the different characters having their mini arcs because if you go back to what i said earlier when calder hears the truth he's he's clearly shaken he goes in and he sits down you know while the other guys are having the discussion and you know the first time that frank is saying it's all bullshit you know calder is sitting there having a moment Calder, during the scene where Lisa's conducting the meeting, he's the one crossing himself while they're talking about Jesus. He's the one who tries to tell Frank they're on the verge of the ultimate truth. When he gets turned, I get the sense he's trying to hold out, that he's singing Amazing Grace, and then rather than attack anyone else, he tries to cut his own throat. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really become mm-hmm. a force against them until after he's basically killed himself and, and is made to rise again the way that uh, Mullins was. Um, so it, it's a really interesting kind of like mini character arc for a guy that's on the periphery of <laughs> the main action. Oh, and like even when he does come back, he's still like doing that unsettling laugh as like he uh, went oh, yeah. insane through this process, like of trying to fight it as well. And it's just that part of him is lingered on as he's still in his unnatural state. Yeah, that kind of high pitched, like <laughs> kind of that that does not look like it goes with that dude. No. And, yeah, he got he got a big old dose of Joker toxin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. love that Joker. Uh, <laughs> so Su- <laughs> Susan and Lisa have brought the cylinder to Kelly's bedside. Priest gives Calder the last rites and stops. And we then see uh, they have been barricaded inside by the homeless people. Walter goes to find Kelly. Her room's lights won't work, and he finds the cylinder, which is dripping green into a pool on the ceiling. And then it starts going faster, and we see it, like, shooting from Kelly's eyes and mouth up there, which is like, ooh. Well, they're shooting they're shooting into her eyes uh, and mouth, right? It's a, str- yeah. it's a stream. 
Well, yeah, yeah. And when, when I watched well. it, yeah, yeah, like like when I saw it the first time, I, I couldn't tell myself it was going in or out. The only way I figured that it was going in is because you know she swells up That's later. True. But yeah, it is yeah. again just a real unsettling image. Yeah. And that's, that's one of those things that actually stops me in a movie and go, how the fuck did they do that? Right, yeah. Because so, some actually... reverse something. But if you look at her head, it doesn't look like a dummy's head. or And, like, it doesn't look like a prosthetic or anything. That's what was, was impressing me. I'm like, there's probably some reverse film, something going on. and all. Well, yeah, I'm sure they took, like, a dummy or whatever and just, you know, attached it. I mean, not to a ceiling, but it was, like, you know, the top of the room or whatever. And then they just pour all the juice out, you know, through those holes and then just reverse the film yeah. is my guess. Somebody needs to make it like a, just a gif of just that that that's you know those ones where it's just like <laughs> one constant motion something of like that that'd be yeah yeah really cool. and underneath it you just write Mondays Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> Susan pops out from the darkness. Everybody catches up in the hallway. Leahy enters Kelly's room and gets sprayed in the face uh, by Lisa to the warning of Walter on the floor. Uh, the priest locks himself in a room. Walter has Susan approaching him and locks himself in like a confessional closet. Uh, Lisa jumps out to the hallway and Calder returns laughing now, as we described earlier. Uh, Mullins pops out from behind them. He's, he's back from the dead too. The rest of the group locks in a room together and Walter looks out his little... Um, kind of screen window thing with a flashlight and sees Kelly is still laying unconscious but appears now pregnant and then Leahy arri- or, like rises up from the floor uh, but they made it to the next day the sun comes up and the homeless are still gathered outside Walter's still stuck in that closet and the others are still in the room next to him but they can hear each other through the walls so they begin trying to like bash a hole through the wall for Walter to escape and I love that you know they hear him and they're like oh Walter and he <laughs> His reply is, yeah, what the fuck do you want? (laughs) Dennis Dunn is invaluable in this movie because he's got the right attitude the entire way through because he's kind of like, he's the one who's not taking anything too seriously. And then when the shit gets serious, he is just over it. He is like, (laughs) save my ass. Just get me out. I didn't even want to be here. I didn't even want to be here. He is the Hudson. Yeah. He's true. mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Calder breaks into the room with the priest, and uh, he looks and laughs into a mirror, reaching for it. Brian escapes out a window into the alley, but quickly climbs back up before the homeless uh, mob can get to him. I want to know what his plan was. Well, (laughs) you're clearly surrounded. Uh, idiot. Yeah, I, I don't know what that. It just feels like a waste of like. What were they? Were they, was he gonna run and tell the cops about like the you know Prince of Darkness coming to like bring the apocalypse? What are the police gonna do about that? Yeah, I well, don't, even I don't. even just to get like past that army of homeless people that was you know on both ends right. of the alley. There's no way he's getting through that, especially when they know that uh, there were people that were murdered outside of this church. Who do you think did that, guys? Maybe that <laughs> gang of people that barricaded you into the church in the first place? It, it's such a Dumbass. weird move. It, it yeah. seems like a, a, an out-of-character move, considering everybody, you know, for being stuck where they are, is, is pretty... There's not a lot of, oh, that person just did something really stupid in the mm-hmm. movie. I mean, a yeah, lot yeah, of the people yeah. get, get taken out um, by surprise. And so when he climbs in the alley, it, it feels kind of 
dumb, like, you know, in a way that a lot of other things in the movie do. But at the same time, I wonder if they put that in there just to show that it wasn't so easy as climbing out a window mm. to, to get away. I, I almost, you know, I almost wonder <laughs> if, mm-hmm. you know, it, it could have been done in reshoots, you know. Hey, why don't they just climb out a window? And Carpenter's like, well, shit, I should try and show him try to climb out a window. It doesn't work. Next. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hell, the window's got worms all over it. I'd leave it alone. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, I tried to escape, but I don't want to get worm fingers. Right. Ugh. Walter continues uh, trying to communicate uh, via jokes with Susan and Lisa as Kelly looks starts looking more grotesque and begins to, like, breathe rapidly. Catherine then has the dream. Uh, Lomax. Who is this guy named Lomax who's there with them? <laughs> <laughs> been there the whole time. Haven't really mentioned him, but he's 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 part of the gang. He's one of the tech guys. He continues to try to break the wall down. Uh, Catherine then tells Brian. The other morning you said that you had something to tell me. And you probably think that none of that matters now. But you're wrong. It's the only thing that does. Calder continues to struggle with the mirror as the priest hides. Kelly continues to have her skin just burn up, boil, just rot. Ugh, it's gross. Yeah, that that was yeah. one of those things that kind of hung around with me a long time after the first time I saw it because that is that is some serious effects makeup going on there. It is unnerving. She's somewhere between Freddy Krueger and like uh, a Cenobite. Yeah. Yeah, she, she is an open sore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Yeah. Bur- burn victims say, oh, I guess it's not that bad. Yeah, at least I'm not Kelly. Yeah. Uh, at least I didn't have anti-God juice blast in my face. Yeah. <clears throat> Barack notices a group of ants on the windowsill and deduces that outside the people are possessed. Uh, the group discusses <laughs> that there must be limits to what the substance can do. And that there is something it needs to complete a life cycle, a person for a host. Walter then lets them know that about Kelly's situation going on in the room. Catherine tells Barack about the uh, mark with which he freaks out about and then tells Walter to tell them about anything that happens. The priest quietly reads from the Bible. Kelly's eyes open as Walter shines his flashlight at her. She turns to him and smiles, slides a cock. That's some bad shit right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that is super scary. Uh, yeah. She slides a cot over with her mind and laughs as, as Walter freaks out. Calder just sits looking in a mirror continually. Kelly rises and moves shit. Walter flips out. Kelly gets up from the bed and joins Susan and Lisa. Uh, Brian and Lomax unbarricade the door to go help Walter. Uh, Lisa, Susan, and Kelly destroy the door to the closet. Walter, that Walter's in, uh, and they come after him, but uh, Brian slowly goes to the hallway, but is confronted by Mullins. He beats him with a stick he has, and Mullins sprays Lomax. Uh, Barack then stabs Mullins in the eye with a pencil. Uh, Kelly sees her reflection and smiles. Brian goes to the hall and meets up with Leahy, who tries to spray him, but he misses. Walter breaks through the wall, but is bitten on the ankle by Lisa before he gets all the way over. When Lisa comes through, Catherine and Walter beat her with bricks. Kelly picks up uh, a makeup mirror uh, compact thing and continues to look at herself. 
Uh, Catherine and Walter throw Lisa out the window. Bye, Lisa. Kelly puts her fingers through the mirror, which acts like water when she puts them in. They, like, just sink into it. She flips out and throws the compact to the ground, smashing it. Brian continues to sneak around the hall. Kelly goes to the room with Calder. She touches his face, and they stare out the wind out the window. Uh, she, she says, Father, and is taken in by a ray of light that comes from the mirror that they were looking at. Susan shows up, and Walter throws her out a window as well. Priest finds an axe. Kelly sticks her hand in the light beam and it and it's like the mirror and like going through and she begins she goes the other side which is kind of watery brian jumps calder and the priest chops kelly's arm off uh then her head she just puts it back on as brian struggles in the hall Catherine shows up kelly sticks her hand in the mirror thing again and she says father come to freedom and we see on the other side there's this big dark hand takes hers and they hold, and Catherine witnesses it. Brian is in submission to Calder on the floor while Kelly begins pulling the hand of Satan through the mirrors, like this red hand with these big nails. And then Catherine bum rushes Kelly, and they both fall into the mirror, and the priest tosses an axe, shattering the mirror. And then smoke begins exiting through the mouths of any person who was possessed, and the homeless just go back to wandering around, still kind of seeming possessed. When they go on the other side of the mirror, uh, like the last thing that you see on that the other side, you see someone's body. Was that uh, Kelly or Catherine, do you think? I think it's Catherine I, I, reaching back. Yeah. Is... Oh, God. That's even worse. I wasn't yeah. sure if that's what it was, but God, that's so much worse. <laughs> yeah. She saved everyone and still tried to get back, but nope, forget it. You're in whatever the hell that place is that anti-God exists. God, that's disturbing. The next morning, the cops are there. The priest is in a stretcher, and they're happy they've stopped the evil, and and it won't happen now. Brian stares at the shattered mirror. Barack tries to get him to appreciate the sacrifice that Catherine made. The smaller parts could not live without the strength of the whole. They had to die fade away as the whole was thrown back and repelled. We're safe, but he's waiting on the other side. She died for us. Then the dream happens, and we find the year is revealed to be 1999. We see a different figure exit the church, and it's Catherine who comes out with her arm stretched. And Brian wakes up, quickly turns to his bed, and he says, Kelly! And then he freaks, and he wakes up again. Double gotcha. And he gets up and goes to the mirror, and he touches his face and then reaches out to it. And just as his fingers are about to touch the mirror, we cut to the credits. That last eight minutes or so is so tense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is it is live wire tension as everything goes bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the whole time I was watching it, I thought like, well, you just gotta close this portal or you know, break the mirror or whatever, just figure it out. And it just sucks that that was the solution was to sacrifice herself to, to end it. And thank goodness, no, thank goodness that she, well, maybe not thank goodness that she did it because maybe she's the anti-god in the future. Yeah. Oh, man. 
And I've always, you know, the, the Jameson Parker bit at the end is that, like, is he, does he think he could connect with her? Or does he think maybe that they're in the flipped around side now? Or, because there's something odd about him. Well, well I mean, he has that, he has a bruise on his face. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought that that had something to do with him. Maybe he's the next chosen one or whatever. I don't know if it was just a coincidence he had that bruise on his face, but that's what I that's what I thought. Yeah. Well, I think I think he got the bruise from the fighting. Um, so I'm not sure if there's yeah. a further extrapolation than that, because when he was he was taking some shots when they were in the hallway, mm-hmm. because you know uh, Brandon mentioned uh, Walter getting bitten, and there's no follow up on that. You just see Walter sitting uh, with the blanket. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the cops yeah. drinking coffee because Walter's the one who eventually goes out the window and runs and gets the cops. Kelly's it, mark just, just started as a bruise. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. You know. That's a, good point. that's a really, but I, I've, I've heard, never really I've thought heard, of Isn't the scene with Jameson Parker touching the mirror, like actually from, it was originally earlier in the movie, got cut and then Carpenter decided to throw it at the end. Like he had an idea or something. I think so. I think that might be the, well, I, I wonder what he was thinking then, why he was touching the mirror then, if it was earlier in the movie. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Like, was it like a premonition or something? Because they, they showed it. The, it was in the trailers. Mm. It's kind of funny that it would be at the end. But I don't know. I, I, I like it at the end. Like, I think was, we were talking earlier. I kind of had an idea. I thought it would be cool. You know, how he plays the card tricks or he always has the card. And it was usually like a seven of spades or something like that. And I think it'd be cool if like at the end, we just saw him playing with the card trick, the kind of bum just because that's like his comfort thing. And you'd notice in the mirror that you'd read the card correctly in the mirror. So it would actually be backwards in reality. And like, you'd be like, wait, what did things shift when she jumped there? And they're actually stuck mm-hmm. in this hell world or something. I don't know. But that's kind of an idea I had when we were talking about that earlier. There is a lot of just really good stuff <laughs> to be mined from this i just every time i see it i always think about that yeah i know definitely just like the, i mean like the thing there's always things to look for in the thing there's good reads on uh, mouth of madness as well so it's it really is a trilogy based in pulling stuff like this from because i mean they're all heady in those areas Now comes the point in the episode where we rate the movie we just watched as we are cult cinema cavalcade. We keep things nice and culty. Our ratings are as follows. Stay with your family. You're like, Frank, fuck this noise. You don't like Prince of Darkness. <laughs> You're done. This crazy operation. Converted. You are, you know, low max. You're there for the ride. You're good for this whole operation. It was solid. You're glad you saw Prince of Darkness. Or drink of the Kool-Aid. You are just in all sorts of in like a possessed homeless person, like Kelly, uh, like even a, you know, into it Catherine. So, Troy, how do you rate Prince of Darkness? Uh, I am totally Kool-Aid on this movie. (laughs) Always have been, don't see that changing. Just a solid horror movie with a lot more besides. I, I really think that Carpenter was thinking at a level that a lot of other people weren't. Even though it's a year for a lot of great horror movies. You know, we mentioned a few of them. Also, The Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of good stuff going on. People are doing a lot of really cool things. But, you know, Carpenter's thinking at a completely different level this year. Colin. Um, I had, uh, you know, a few issues with the movie. It's a well, it's not a bad, poorly made movie. 
at all. Um, there's just parts that kind of like pulled me out of the movie, uh, or I shouldn't say pulled me out. I just kind of stopped paying attention because I knew it wasn't going to be like Im- that, that important later on. Like when they're talking uh, about like astrophysics and all that stuff. I mean, not just with uh, Brian and uh, and Catherine, but you know when uh, the uh, the priest and um, the professor are talking. And like you know, it's interesting stuff. That's fine, but I didn't think it was going to matter like at the end of the movie like if it was if they, were, if they were talking about something that could be applied to stop this uh creature then that would have been cool but i never felt that so i just just kind of glazed over and waited for those conversations to end sometimes and that, and that kind of that stinks kind of um made the movie a little less fun and it just takes so long for this thing to get started uh like, like honestly i was uh just kind of sitting there like not hating it but just not really enjoying it that much and so that creepy broadcast from the future happened. And then it was like, okay, you got me again. Let me see what else you got. And, and uh, the rest of it was really interesting. Uh, to that, you know, After that, it's just, you have to get to that point and it sucks. Cause that's like 50 minutes into the movie. Um, so that's why I say I am converted on it, but it's definitely like the low end. It's definitely worth seeing. I'll probably watch it again to see if uh, I, that rating improves at all. I don't know. Brandon, how do you rate Prince of Darkness. Uh, yeah, I definitely. Uh, I've got, you know, I, I, I'm gonna drink the Kool Aid on it because, you know, like I mentioned before, it's something like I wasn't into. I was probably maybe even less than what Colin thought of it when I first saw it. But then, you know, seeing it at an older age and then, you know, really getting into it, I've I've returned to it quite a few times compared to like some of the other Carpenter films I usually watch. Um, used to watch more, but this one fascinates me. I get new reads on it. I focus on different things every time. I it's pretty deep but it's also really effective in its creepiness and the scares like the halls of this place are just terrifying just like this the setting is creepy i mean the 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 quote-unquote monsters possessed people are really effective there's a lot of like you know color mentioned like there's japanese horror stuff going on there's italian horror stuff going on just done in a good blend of effectiveness that just feels of its own for this movie and I you know I like Pleasance in it. This was I think this is the last time Carpenter and Pleasance worked together. Kind of caps it off. And you know who doesn't love the Jameson Parker mustache, right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know it's got people he's worked with uh, a few times. You know he's got Dennis Dunn in there, Peter Jason, Victor Wong. Yeah, if if there's a movie, a Carpenter movie that just like sits by, kind of like sits by its you know its, its own thing, but it's like pure Carpenter still through and through. This is this is one of them. I like to say that this is the most. Um, underseen of his movies that I think is really good that people don't you know watch as much and a lot of people come back well about Mouth of Madness I'm like I hear about In the Mouth of Madness all the time I do with the, the under- I think yeah. we've gotten to the point where people like have accepted In the Mouth of Madness but I'm like Prince of Darkness is the next one you need to go back and look at and I've also I was talking earlier about like how I even think with John Carpenter I think back in the day it was a given that you know oh you know Assault on Pre-Seek 13 great but i think we've gotten to the point where i think that film has kind of been forgotten in like the last decade and should go back and be like hey remember that was really good too um but i think of his catalog the underseen one that you should really check out would probably be this one i mean it's it's better than pretty much his whole 90s output i think and i just it, it stands there it's got that classic carpenter feel if you if you like it i mean it's in the 80s of course but you know it's in that good run like troy mentioned of uh, big trouble uh Prince of Darkness and They Live, so it's it's pretty yeah. cool, and it, I think it makes a nice fun back to back with They Live as well. 
but yeah, no, I drink. Yeah, which on. it's kind of interesting too that they live doesn't get lumped in with the apocalypse movies, but you yeah, know, it's, it's it's really strange, right? <laughs> I think is what he's going with. Well, you know? it's odd that a movie about uh, aliens that have infiltrated our society and have more or less controlling you know human history, it's light more lighthearted than the others. Yeah, yeah. it also feels like a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's one of the the. They Live used to be really funny in a particular way, and it's not nearly as funny as it used to be. <laughs> right. Well, no, yeah. I, I, I was telling Troy, I was like, you know, like it's funny how, you know, Carpenter, you know, we were talking about how Carpenter, you know, was, you know, been ahead of his time. You know, at the time the movies came out, the critics didn't get him. A lot of moviegoers didn't get him. And I was like, you know, still to this day, how many Republicans do you see rocking those They Live shirts? They do. And they don't understand. Wait, yeah. you, you, do you know what that movie's about? I'm a hardcore conservative Republican. I'm like, they live's awesome. I'm like, is it to you? <laughs> do you, like, do you understand it? what's happening? If maniacs, zombies, aliens, monsters, and madmen are your line, then try this. Creep phone, the phone number nightmares are made of. Call 1-900-909-CREEP. Creep Phone puts you in touch with the baddest of the bad. And now you can be a Creep Phone star. Record your own screaming monster madness. You may be heard by millions of Creep Phone fans nationwide. Call now. Under 18, get permission before calling. $2 first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. On the next episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we'll be discussing Trick or Treat. Not, not to be confused with the modern, recent cult classic, Trick or Treat. This is Trick or Treat from 1986, the heavy metal horror movie with Ozzy Osbourne in it. And joining us for discussion will be our old friend, Bianca Elaine, who's coming back to tell you more about her film, Zombie Natrix, and their newest push to help complete the film. And of course, I just want to thank everybody who you know listens in all the time. Hope you got a treat here with some John Carpenter. A nice reward after you know Oscar, and then going crazy with Hack Lantern. Here's a, here's a, here's a solid movie right here, a competently made piece. Uh, um, and uh, thank you to Troy for coming on again. Well, thank you guys for joining us in October, like always, for more. Oh, it's fun. <laughs> you brought science yeah. to the table this time. Weird, Troy. Weird. Science for any occasion. Yeah, it's just what a, what a progression. What. <laughs> So, do you want to tell people once again where we can find all your lovely work? Oh, yeah. Um, Saturday Evening Post. So, SaturdayEveningPost.com or SatEvePost.org. Eminent Press, which is Eminent.press. We've got the Kickstarter for Terminal Anthology Series 3 and 4 going on. And then my ongoing web comic, uh, Spark Shooter, with artist and Karu, is still at SparkShooter.com. Excellent. Thank you. There you go. Thank you, guys. No problem. It's always great to come by. Well, we look forward to next time, but first, stay tuned for the trailer to Trick or Treat, the trailer that actually trails. Wake up, sleepyhead. It's body time! Rock and roll will never die. At least not this Halloween. Inverted. Raising spirits from the dead by incantations, right? Yes. I did that by playing a record backwards. You're kidding. Sammy Kerr. He's a rock and roll nightmare. I am a big fan of yours. I've got all your records. Shut up! You're the big. The big is you. 
This message is meant for me. How can you listen to this stuff? Sammy Kerr. His fans won't let him die. He won't let them live. You should be loyal to your hero. Make it turn on you. Like we better check out the party punch. Thank you for listening to Cult Cinema Cavalcade, part of the Creative Zombie Studios Network. For press opportunities, advertising opportunities, and more information on Cult Cinema Cavalcade, contact mail at cultcinemacavalcade.com. Produced by Brad Shoemaker. Edited by Brandon Peters. Narration by Rebecca Peters. Theme song Pink Baby by Happy Elf appears courtesy of the freemusicarchive.org network. The film and music featured in this episode are part of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Join us again in two weeks for a new episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade. There you go, Colin. There's that. Let me add a little fluff to this thing here. You guys there? Yes, yes. We're here. Yeah, yeah. Just saving the magic for the show. <laughs> <laughs>